If I may say so, sir, Superman seems like a splendid chap. Perhaps you should reconsider joining his Justice League. You forget, Alfred. I will alone. I am a shadow, protector of all but friend to no one. I am a solitary spirit of vengeance who walks the night alone and... <clears throat> hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Mark Tiberius Lemke, Chicago Blackhawks fan. This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, so you can help support the Batman Universe by heading over to patreon.com slash thebatmanuniverse. We are on episode 139. My name is Tim, and I'm going to be your host for this episode. And this one's going to be a little different, because I'll be flying solo on this episode. Almost like Batman going out on patrol by himself without the help of Nightwing, Robin, or Batgirl with him. Because, unfortunately, Dane was super busy this uh, weekend today as we're recording this episode. So, um, But I wanted to make sure we get an episode out to you guys, because I know just recently uh, we had a two-week period where we missed an episode and didn't want to have two of them so close together where we missed one, so... Wanted to make sure we get an episode out to you guys. So hopefully you won't be sick of my voice by the time this episode's over. Uh, but as always, we gotta get started with our Dark Knight Rides' minute-by-minute commentary. So, as always, go ahead and bring out your dead media format, whether it's VHS, Betamax, Laserdisc, your Blockbuster membership card, your Netflix physical media, all that good stuff. And go ahead and get it queued up to the 1 hour and 28 minute mark. And I'll go ahead and start the countdown. So in 3, 2, 1... Play. And we're just about to go to the scene where Bane's going to cause massive destruction on the football stadium. But first, we're still in the middle of the national anthem. And I remember this whole sequence was where they had their set visit reports. I might have mentioned that on our last one, but I know this is where they call a lot of extras and a lot of uh, website uh, reviewers and critics got to visit the set here and talk to Tom Hardy, Christopher Nolan, and the crew. So I know this is a pretty big day to film. <laughs> I also like how Bane just says, com- compliments the little kid on his lovely voice. <laughs> that was always just a little nice touch. And I assume those are all real NFL players. I know there are some out there, but I'm not sure if there's a mix of some extras or if they're all just NFL players, like real ones. I like to think they are, but I'm not 100% sure. Crowd gives a loud cheer, but little do they know. <laughs> so things are going to get a lot more exciting than just a football game, but that's gonna have to wait for another episode because the minute is up and with that uh, we can go ahead and go into our first uh, news discussion topic um, I know we usually like to do our featured topic episode but or section here at this point of the episode but um, originally I wanted to do an in-depth review of the first episode of Batman the Enemy Within as that just came out this week and I when the first season came out me and Dane always uh, review the first episode that that was released and we go over and compare our decisions that we made so since Dane's not here for this one maybe we want to save that for another episode but I guess I'll just go ahead and give a quick non-spoiler review of it and I will have to say Telltale is just knocking it out of the park (laughs) with these games they just continue right where they left off with the great uh, first season and into this next one Um, what I just love about it is these different unique takes they give on these classic Batman characters where it just feels right and it feels natural but yet being something different and unique and they did that with the Riddler uh, in this new uh, season for the enemy within they just did a great job so that was really good there's some definitely some surprises (laughs) that caught me off guard while I was playing and I'm sure it will other gamers and Batman fans too but 
yeah, some big decisions to make, which I really can't wait to compare with Dane on because I have a feeling I might have made some different choices than the majority of players because at the end it tells you a percentage of what players chose what, and there was one of them where I was on a pretty low percentage on. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see uh, what Dane chose and even what other players, uh, if they chose differently, how different the game will be because of their decisions. So more great stuff like that. I will say... Kind of what I loved about the first episode of last season was the great cliffhanger and twist that they had there where they revealed the Wayne family, Thomas and Martha, might not be as good as Bruce and we all <laughs> remember them to be. So that was quite the shock. The ending for this one didn't quite have that same like shock value to it, but at the same time, it's okay. Because uh, uh, one of the new characters they introduced in here is Amanda Waller and the ending involves her. And it's something that we've seen before in other Batman stories. So it wasn't quite a shock with how this first episode ended. But it was still cool. Even though the ending wasn't quite shocking, there was still a lot of shocking moments to be had in that first episode. So I personally loved it. I think Telltale is just picking up right where they left off with the first season. And I can't wait for more. So hopefully in our next episode we can give a more in-depth review of, you know, our thoughts on the game and some of the choices that we made because there was really interesting ones to be had in this one, which was great. So uh, with that, the first news story that we've had uh, this past few weeks, and this one's a, kind of a sad one because it's the end of a truly great career, and that is Andrea Romano, the legendary uh, voice director, is retiring. Um, I know she said this might have been a few years ago now where she was planning to retire, but um, sadly she had to do it sooner than she wanted to because um, according to the article over at IGN um, it mentioned how she's having some health problems with her eye and I believe it even said that it caused her to go blind in one eye which is really unfortunate so she had to retire sooner than expected but and such a well-deserved retirement and just what a legacy she left I mean the shows that she worked on are just incredible and the talent that uh, she got to work with and bring to an audience to get exposed to and, and have these shows be, you know, the classic size they are because of the voice talents. I mean, of course, the main one is Batman, the animated series, and just the iconic performances that uh, she got from these actors. And, yeah, that, of course, the big ones, Kevin Conway and Mark Hamill. But even for some of the uh, minor characters and villains that were on the show, it wasn't just, you know, just get any old uh, actor in here to do a quick job. No, they took... Or she took her time to get top quality actors to give give their all for these performances, no matter how small the role might be, and that's what makes the show great and stand above the rest. But not only just Batman the animated series, but other some of my other favorite shows as a little kid, Ducktales being a, a big one, which I didn't know she worked on until later on, which is really cool to, to learn because as I look back on some of the shows she worked on, a lot of them were shows I watched as a little kid way before Batman the Animated Series came on. So knowing that she was involved in a lot of that is just great. And she continued throughout the DC animated universe, of course, with Superman, Batman Beyond, Justice League. So all those, I mean, the non-DC AU shows in the continuity, like the Batman, Batman Brave and the Bold, everything DC she worked on, including the animated movies that we got from 2007. Not all of those were great casting, in my opinion, but still, not going to be 100% all the time. So, um, But not just on the DC front, shows like Animaniacs, Tiny Toons were totally on the other side of the spectrum when it comes to what type of cartoons they are, more silly comedy stuff, but they still show still new great actors to pull off those characters, especially with Animaniacs and Tiny Toons with the robust cast of different characters they had on there, and 
again, Andre Romano found the perfect voice actors for those characters to make them really funny and unique. So no matter what type of show she worked on, action, comedy, she, she just nailed the casting. And she definitely was the best and probably will be the best in the business. So um, it's sad that she's retiring, but even the more recent shows that she worked on have been fantastic. Of course, I got to mention Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the current show on Nickelodeon that started in 2012. That's phenomenal voice casting and acting in that as well. So that's a top one. And then more recently, another classic 80s show that got revived, Voltron, Legendary Defender. That has a great voice cast too. So her work just, you know, was spot on throughout her whole career. And I'm just thankful that I had the opportunity to actually meet her when I went to some of the uh, previous screenings that they had and covered for the Dark Knight Returns animated movie, Justice League Doom. Justice League Doom was the first one where I got to interview her, and she was just super nice, always, you know, answering, took the time to answer my questions, and I was just glad I actually got to thank her for the work that she's done in all these classic shows. So, Andrea Romano, you're, you're going to be missed, but your work is going to uh, stand the test of time and be forever remembered. So, congratulations on your retirement and for a truly, truly great career. And then also, um, another bit of news that we've had is we got a first trailer for the Batman vs. Two-Face animated movie, and sadly, this is going to be the last time we're going to hear Adam West as Batman. But as sad as that is, it's still cool. We got one more movie, one more performance from Adam West as Batman coming. And this one looks really, really good. I was a big fan of the first animated movie, Return of the Cape Crusaders. I thought they captured that uh, slapstick comedy and just campiness of the Adam West TV show perfectly in animation. And this one looks to continue that. But uh, the thing that stood out to me most in this trailer is Two-Face, which of course was a villain that never showed up in the actual 60 TV show, but the voice actor that they got to play him is William Shatner, and I remember when that news first came out, I just thought, oh, this is going to be so cool to have Adam West and William Shatner facing off against each other in an animated movie, and I was curious, though, to see how William Shatner is going to pull off Two-Face. Is he going to be the typical overdramatic Shatner style in his acting, or is it going to do something different to make it more like a Two-Face that well, you know, that we've become accustomed to throughout various Batman stories. And it turns out it's a bit of both. As Harvey Dent, when he's just normal Harvey, it's typical William Shatner, and it oddly fits <laughs> well for the design to have of that Harvey Dent. But then when he comes Two-Face, it sounds like Two-Face, and but just a little William Shatner in there. I've, it's almost to the point where if you were just hearing his voice as Two-Face, you might not automatically guess that that's William Shatner. So I think it's kind of the best of both worlds. Still got that little Shatner s style to it, but yet you know it's still capturing uh, how Two Face should sound. I would think so. It all looks really good. I will say it doesn't have that you know campy over the top humor as the first movie did. It's, I'm comparing the trailers, of course. I haven't seen the new movie, but just in this trailer, it didn't seem to be over the top funny like the last one was. But I'm sure there's going to be moments in there. But this trailer, I don't think showcased that too much like the one for the Return of the Cape Crusaders did. But I can't wait for it. I think it looks like it's going to be lots and lots of fun. And again, with William Shatner being as Harvey Dent in Two-Face is cool. And of course, having it be the last performance of Adam West as Batman, I think it's just, you know, automatically worth the watch for all Batman fans to check out. So um, that one should be out later this year, and I'm definitely going to be seeing it. Hopefully they do another theatrical release for it like they did the last one. Because I went to the theater to see The Return of the Cape Crusaders, and that was a lot of fun. So hopefully they'll do that again for uh, Batman versus Two-Face. 
So that's it for uh, the main news stories that we got uh, the last few weeks. So I guess I can go ahead and jump into Jordan's email. And Jordan, thank you for sending the email because this episode is probably going to be shorter than usual since it's just me <laughs> talking to myself. But you definitely sent an email that should definitely fill up us a lot of time because you finished your Smallville rewatch and you definitely let let me know and got all your bases covered of what you've enjoyed about the remaining season. So I make just to dive into that. So I'll go ahead and get started on Jordan's email. He says, hey, Tim and Dane and Alex, it's great to have you guys back. It was a lot of fun to hear you guys chat about all the amazing stuff out of Comic-Con that happened during the little hiatus. Before I get into the biggest thing from the weekend for DC fans, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the smaller stuff. I'm very excited about Grant Morrison's Arkham Asylum 2. I'm actually not a very big fan of not a very big fan of Morrison's work, but the original Arkham Asylum is one comic of his that I do truly love. Tim, you got to get on that one, my friend. I think it's the closest I've ever read to a Batman horror story. It's very psychological, and I love it. I'm eager to see what Morrison does with the sequel. It's interesting to me that he's going with Damien as Batman instead of Bruce. I'm kind of disappointed that Dave McKean won't be returning as the artist, since his art was one of the things that makes the first one so incredible. But I'm confident Chris Berman will give us some great art in his place. I know that's the shame mark on my Batman fan card, not having read Arkham Asylum, but one of these days I'll get on it. I, I know it's really good. I'm... The art is definitely unique to that story. It probably isn't my favorite because I have flipped through it at bookstores a while ago. And but I'm, as much as it's a style that you know doesn't jump out at me, I'm sure it fits for the type of story that Grant Morrison is telling. So that's something I'll probably just have to overcome when I do get to read it. Uh, but Jordan continues saying the other announcement on the comics front that caught my attention from Comic Con was Superman Year One. I don't particularly care for Frank Miller's take on Superman. But what gets me excited about this, anyway, is that Miller wrote the definitive Batman origin story in the comics, so perhaps he can deliver an amazing one for Superman as well. I don't know whether this is going to be set in the Dark Knight universe. I'd probably be more excited if it turns out that it isn't, but I imagine it probably will be. Anyway, while I have some mixed feeling on this, overall I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, Superman Year One, I'm not really super excited on it, you know, Frank Miller's work hasn't been, you know, the best as it has been in previous years. Uh, the Dark Knight 3, I actually haven't finished yet. I, the, I believe I read the first five or six issues, and might have been just five. And they were good. Uh, they had some great moments in there, but I know Brian Azzarello uh, did a lot with the script, too. So I'm not really sure how much was Brian, how much was uh, Frank Miller's. But um, I don't know. I don't really think Superman needs a year one story from Frank Miller right now in the actual DC continuity we have gotten Superman uh, year one type origin stories before. I know Jeff Johns uh, did one a few years ago with uh, uh, Superman, which was with Gary Frank, which was really good. And, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, yeah, that was pre-New 52. So that's probably not in continuity anymore. But if you even got uh, something similar in style like that, it would be good. But I just don't hope, hope Frank Miller doesn't go so out there and does some draft, drastically different stuff if it's in the main continuity. So yeah, I agree, Jordan. It will be interesting to see what universe it's set in. I mean, this I actually would prefer if it is in the Dark Knight universe, just so if Frank Miller wants to do some crazy stuff, it won't be a big deal as it won't affect the main continuity. So I, would be, I wouldn't mind if it's in the Dark Knight universe, actually, because I just have a feeling Frank Miller is going to do some strange stuff with Superman that might not sit well with some people. So we'll see. But Jordan continues saying, 
In terms of animation, the Young Justice stuff did look pretty awesome to him. I'm excited for Spoiler as well. Her costume looks great. It's awesome how they briefly introduced us to her in Season 2, setting her up to don the costume in Season 3. Another character who was teased earlier in the show, in Season 1 actually, and much more briefly, is Arrowette, who will be in Season 3 as well. She should be a cool addition too. Finally, there's the mysterious character of 13. When I first saw her picture, I thought she might be Cassandra Kane, But then when they said her name was 13, my mind instead went to Tracy 13. I actually read all of the Jaime Reyes Blue Beetle pre-Flashpoint run, and she was in a relationship with Jaime during that time. I really took a liking to her character while reading that run, so I hope that this is who the character is. She was actually in Teen Titans, the Judas Contract animated movie. She was the girl who was working at the soup kitchen with Jaime. Given how major a character Blue Beetle is in Young Justice, I feel like it would make a lot of sense for them to introduce pretty much a supporting character from his comics onto the team. As for the picture of Artemis, Dick, Jefferson, and Connor in some, in some sort of covert gear, I think that could be the Outsiders, referenced in the new subtitle. I mean, Jefferson Pierce is a member of the Outsiders in the comics, of course, and maybe this is a Young Justice, Young Justice version of that. If these heroes are now operating as the Outsiders, it would make sense why Arrowhead would join the Young Justice team to sort of replace Artemis as another archer on the team. Anyway, that's just some speculation. I'm so pumped for the third season. Yeah, it's a good call on uh, the character of 13, uh, connecting it to uh, someone who was associated with Jaime Reyes in the comics and then in the Judas Contract animated movie. I didn't put those two together, but that makes total sense of that character uh, being part of the team since Jaime as Blue Beetle is the main part of the team as well. So I could definitely see that happen. And the uh, Outsiders uh, connection makes sense too. I mean, that's the name of the show, like you said. So it would make sense that maybe they are, you know, part of Batman's outsider team. Hopefully there will be that Batman connection if they call themselves that. So it will be interesting. You know, it's coming in 2018. Just hopefully we'll get a, you know, an exact release date soon because it's, I can't wait for this as well. And he continues saying, On the DCU AOM front, I was very excited about the announcement of the next films on the slate. I already knew about Batman Gotham by Gaslight due to the box art for Batman and Harley Quinn, but since I didn't talk about it in previous email, I'll just say now that I'm very happy that they're doing this one. I think Gotham by Gaslight is such an amazing Elseworlds tale with an intriguing mystery at the heart of it, and I can't wait to see it come to life in animation. As for Suicide Squad, Hell to Pay, this seems like a no-brainer to capitalize on the success, well, financially at least, of the live-action Suicide Squad movie. I love the DCU AOM uh, line's first take on the Task Force X, and even though it was set in a different continuity than this one will be, what they did with Batman Assault on Arkham gives me a lot of confidence that Suicide Squad Hell to Pay will be awesome as well. Now let's get to the big surprise. The two-part Death of Superman, Reign of Superman movie. This announcement shocked me. I mean, DC making this feel like an actual acknowledgement that they feel that Superman Doomsday was not a success. Tim, I have to admit, I completely disagree on Superman's Doomsday. Or Superman Doomsday. I love that film. However, I have not read the Death of Superman comics. I know, go ahead and revoke my geek card. <laughs> well, Jordan, both of our geek cards have uh, blemishes on it. With Me with uh, Batman Arkham Asylum and yours with Superman. Or not reading Death of Superman, so... It's all good. Like I said on the last episode, I think everyone has one blemish on their comic card or Batman geek card. We're not reading every single iconic story out there. It just happens. We just can't read everything. Uh, but he says, so I don't have as many expectations going into it. Even so, 
I'm nonetheless excited for what sounds like will be a more, a much more faithful adaption. Also, I'm so thankful that they're finally doing another solo Superman movie in this line. I mean, it's been four years, and it'll be five in 2018, since Superman Unbound. It's about time. One thing that I'm curious about regarding the upcoming DCU AOM releases is the change in pattern. Their pattern ever since they launched the new 52-inspired shared universe has been to do an in-continuity film in the winter, an in-continuity film in the spring, and an out-of-continuity film in the summer. It appears that won't be the case in 2018 or 19. I wonder if this pattern is changing permanently or just temporarily. Yeah, I, I can't believe when you said that in your email, Jordan. It's been four years already since we've got a solo Superman film when... You know, before that, it was always, you know, a Batman and a Superman film every year. We got two of those, and maybe the third one will be a Justice League movie. Or uh, focus on another character like Flashpoint, but yet it has Justice, Justice League in the title. So, yeah, I can't believe it's been that long. And you're right, it is about time Superman got his own movie. I, like I said last episode, I think a truly faithful adaption of the death and reign of Superman, or death of Superman and reign of the Superman story is so, so cool. Yeah, well... I know Doomsday, that first movie in 27 or 2007, I know it has its critics, I know it has its fans too, so I don't think it's slight, slighted one way or the other which uh, the legacy of that movie is, so I know it does have its fans, and I'm glad you enjoyed, enjoyed it at least, Jordan, because I think probably not reading the comics might have helped with the enjoyment because you didn't know what was missing from it and maybe not notice how rushed it felt in certain areas, so... That was probably the better way to go into that movie. At least I think, because when I saw it, I was like, oh, this isn't there. This felt rushed, or this doesn't feel right when this thing is missing. So, yeah, I think going into it those different ways probably affected our viewings of it. But I am glad that you enjoyed it. But he continues saying, on to live action, but not quite to the live action movies. We got some DC TV trailers as well. Even though Arrow is my favorite of the current live action shows, Keep my wording there in mind for when I move on to my Smallville thoughts later. Supergirl actually had the best trailer this year, in my opinion. The Arrow one was good, but it was mostly just a rehash of last season. There wasn't much new stuff. The new stuff that we did get was cool, though. It looks like there's going to be a Black Siren vs. Black Canary rematch focus on Oliver and a focus on Oliver being a father to William and more Deathstroke. More of Deathstroke has me especially excited. The Flash trailer this year was cool but it also didn't show much new stuff. I enjoyed the Legends of Tomorrow trailer, but that's my least favorite of the Arrowverse shows, so I didn't get that excited, except for the Easter egg for the Flying Graysons. But is it just an Easter egg? That's what I'm wondering about. At the scene at the circus, there are acrobats in Robin-type costumes in the background. Will we actually meet the Flying Graysons? Even if not, it's a really exciting Easter egg. But if so, that'll be amazing. The Gotham trailer was almost entirely stuff from last season, but I was blown away by the very end. Scarecrow is back. Like you, Tim, I love Scarecrow. This has been a long time coming. I've been waiting patiently for the payoff ever since he was set up in Season 1. And now we're going to get it. His costume looks his costume looks absolutely terrifying. And I love the line he says, which is a nod to the line he says in Batman Begins. Alright, now on to what I thought was the best trailer, Supergirl. This show seems to be undergoing a significant tonal shift. I thought Season 2 was a fair amount darker than Season 1, but Season 3 is, seems to be going even further in that direction. While I did love how bright and upbeat Season 1 was, I am very intrigued by this change. Monel's sacrifice seems like it's really going to weigh in on Supergirl in Season 3, as it should. 
and I loved hearing Supergirl talk about making the decisions that she did. Kara Danvers was a mistake. I got chills hearing that line. That was really powerful. Since now Supergirl feels that she can't be a superhero and have another part of her life where she can be happy. Also, we got our first look at Erica Durant as our new Alora in the trailer. As I said in my last email, I loved Erica, Erica as Lois Lane. I'll, I'll get way more into Smallville later in this email, of course. But I'll just say right now, while I'm on the subject, that I would agree with Tim. She is my favorite live-action Lois as well. It'll be such a treat to have her return to the DC Universe as Supergirl. Or on Supergirl. Yeah, so as far as the TV trailers, I agree with you where most of them didn't really blow me away. Like I said, a lot were started off with flashbacks of what happened in the previous season and then a little bit of new footage of what's coming up. But I will say the Arrow one was my favorite uh, because of what they showed in the new upcoming season. And, you know, the big part of that, like you said, is going to be Deathstroke. He just looks, I'm so glad he's back. And I don't know if it's confirmed yet that he's a season, a series regular again, but I know he's going to be in uh, more episodes than, you know, just showing up in the last one for season five. So I am excited he's going to be in more episodes. And if he's a season regular, that would be great. <laughs> so I loved all that stuff with Oliver chatting with Slade again and then him being uh, more ha- having to take on that father role for his son. So I'm really excited for this season of Arrow going into it, especially how uh, much of a bounce back I thought season five was and how great the finale was for season five and how it left things. So hopefully season six can keep up on that pace. The Supergirl one I thought was good too. Uh, like I said, it's is an interesting new status quo and what state of mind Kara is in. So it should be interesting to see how that plays out. But um, I agree too on Gotham. That Scarecrow sh- uh, reveal in there took me by surprise, but man, he looked really, really good. Say what you want about Gotham, but if you, anyone who sees this trailer, I don't think they can say anything bad about how Scarecrow looks. He's is kind of similar to the Batman Begins version, but still its own unique look. The mask that he wears looks, you know, like Jordan, you said, terrifying in that clip. So I'm really excited to see what they do with Scarecrow. Despite the fact that, again, it probably is too soon to have Jonathan Crane be donning that mask and calling himself the Scarecrow at this point. I know he was still kind of a kid, maybe a young teenager in season one. So unless he goes through that big uh, growth spurt that (laughs) Ivy did to become Poison Ivy by that... that, I forget the character's name, and I don't want to call him Metahuman because they're not called Metas on Gotham, but it's one of those uh, experiments from uh, Hugo Strange Laboratory who was able to age anyone he touches uh, just by grabbing them in the crazy of Poison Ivy, who was a little kid still in, earlier this season. He touched her, and it caused her to grow up to an adult. So I don't, know, I don't think they're going to do that with Jonathan Crane, so he might just be an older teenager with the Scarecrow mask. So... But regardless, he looks really cool. I agree. It should be cool to see him uh, actually, you know, be the scarecrow. And as long as he looks good, uh, I'll be happy and probably enjoy it as I'm seeing it on the TV screen. So uh, with you, Jordan, I am excited to see their take on Scarecrow. But Jordan continues his email saying, All right, let's get on to the biggest thing out of Comic-Con this year, the new Justice League trailer. I loved it. It was very smart of them to open with Wonder Woman, given how successful her solo film was. I said shortly after Wonder Woman came out that WB would be wise to feature her as prominently as as possible in their Justice League marketing, and it looks like that's exactly what they're doing. I really like how Superman's death is sort of a focal point throughout the entire trailer. My favorite part of the trailer is Batman's voiceover that says, Superman was a beacon to the world. He didn't just save people, he made them see the best parts of themselves. 
That line encapsulates how inspirational Superman is so well. Steppenwolf looks awesome in the trailer. He seems like he's going to be a very formidable opponent. I love how Syrian Hines, I'm probably saying his name wrong, <laughs> I love Syrian Hines' voice for him too. I nearly fell out of my chair when he said the no lanterns line. There are a lot of cool action beats in the trailer. I love seeing Batman just plow through some parademons, and the scene where Aquaman surfs on a parademon through a building is unbelievable. All the comedic moments in the trailer work for me as well. Alfred has a couple. One of those is his reference to the Penguin, which I dug. I love how they're uh, alluding to Batman's rogues gallery in these movies. They did it in Batman v Superman, and they're doing it again in Justice League. One of the most appealing things about Batfleck is how much history he has. Alfred also has a line, Do I know you? when Cyborg takes over the Nightcrawler, which I thought was hilarious too. But it's the Flash who I think is really going to be the scene stealer. The scene where he tells Batman, I've just pushed people and run away, cracks me up. And then there was a scene that we heard about uh, about from the set visit reports of him on the rooftop with Gordon after all the other heroes have disappeared. That was so funny. The trailer ends with someone coming to see Alfred. This has led to a ton of speculation, but I'm 90% sure it's Superman. You can even sort of see what I think is a red cape in the bottom right-hand corner of that shot. Anyway, as of my writing this email, we're 99 days away from the release of Justice League, and this trailer got me even more excited for it than I already was. 100% agree with you there, Jordan. I love this trailer, and I still continue to love it. <laughs> still watch it. Can't say I watch it every day, but there's still moments where I just go, man, I want to see that Justice League trailer again, and it just gets me excited. And yeah, for that end sequence with Alfred and the mystery character, I actually think uh, you being 90% sure it's Superman Jordan is a little low. I'm, I can't say 100% since I haven't seen the movie, but I'm like 99.9% .9 that that is Superman. I will be absolutely shocked if it's someone else. And like you said, I think you could even see a little bit of his cape in the corner of the screen. So it's got to be Superman. If not, boy, it'll be a big surprise and just, you know, shocking to see who that actually is and how, who Alfred would say that to. So, uh, I, but it's Superman. I mean, it's got to be. But Jordan continues saying, I'm so excited for the second season of Batman the Telltale series. I was on the same page as you guys regarding the first season. It was a masterpiece. Hopefully this one continues that trend. I really like what we saw of the Joker in the first season, and I'm eager to see more of him. I'm also excited to see how the Riddler plays into the second season. His design makes him look a lot like Green Arrow, but I actually like it a lot. I hope that Catwoman returns for the second season. The way she leaves Bruce at the end of the first season was one of my only complaints about it. I need more Bat-Cat moments in season 2, since the ones that were in season 1 were incredible. The release date for the mobile version, which is how I'm going to play it, hasn't been announced yet, but apparently it's later than for the console version unfortunately. Hopefully it won't be too long before I can join in on the fun though, because I am beyond excited for this. Yeah, so I don't think you're going to be disappointed with the first episode of season 2, Jordan. As I said in the opening, I thought it was great and this is a really fantastic continuation of where things left off in the first season. And you're right about the Riddler kind of looking more like Green Arrow. I will say I'm a little torn on his design because I do like that look when villains wear, you know, the hood over their face. But I just don't think it fits the Riddler. I would think he want to show as much of his face as possible without revealing his identity. Because he still wears that domino mask like he usually wears all the time. So just knowing how flamboyant and what... And, the attention he always wants to seek from Batman and people, I don't think he'd be covering his face too much with the hood, but yeah, one small little complaint, but it's still a great take on the Riddler, and then 
once you find out more about his story and history, it's really, really good. So you're going to enjoy it, Jordan. I know you will. And as far as Catwoman, um, she's, spoiler alert, no, not really a big spoiler. I'll just say she's not in the first episode, but knowing on the menu screen where you select your, where it gives you the choice to choose an episode, the remaining episodes of the season are there, but you can't pick them. They're kind of blocked out. And one of them, I think it was episode three, you see like the header image for it was a shadow of what looks to be Catwoman. So I think it's a pretty safe bet. It's a pretty safe bet that Catwoman's going to show up this season. So, like I said, it'll be interesting to see where things are with her and Bruce. Though there are some nice references to Selena in the first episode, so you got that to look forward to. And Jordan continues saying, "So about that remastered for Batman: Mask of the Phantasm." It took a little while after the Blu-ray came out for the HD remaster to become available on Amazon Video, but it finally did, and so I got a chance to watch it this past weekend, and boy does it look beautiful. I mean, Batman Mask of the Phantasm was already one of the closest things to perfection I've ever seen, but then it inched just a little bit closer even with the remaster. Stunning. Yeah, glad you got to see it through digitally, because I wasn't sure if it was going to come out um, through digital services because I know just the announcement was for Blu-ray through Warner Brothers Archive but good thing they released it more widely than just the Blu-rays so everyone who might watch more stuff digitally than physical media do like Jordan <laughs> perfect example and he got to check it out and see it in the best quality possible so glad you enjoyed it and Jordan continues saying I have not seen War for the Planet of the Apes yet I'm not sure I'm going to catch it in theaters but if I don't I'll sur- surely watch it when it comes out on digital I'm really excited about it, especially after how much I love Dawn of, or how much I love Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. The next time I go to the theater will likely be to see Batman and Harley Quinn for the one night showing on August 14th. I got my tickets as soon as they became available. I can't wait for this one. Are either of you guys planning to do that? If I go to the movies to see something besides that anytime soon, though, it'll probably be Dunkirk. Yeah, I don't know what happened with my local theater, but they're not showing Batman and Harley Quinn. They showed The Killing Joke. They showed Batman The Return of the Cake Crusaders, like I mentioned earlier. But when I looked for Batman Harley Quinn, my theater wasn't listed. So that's kind of a bummer. I'll probably just end up waiting to get the Blu-ray when it comes out. But uh, let us know what you think of it, Jordan, when you see it. And hopefully you get a good crowd there. Because, unfortunately, the two times I went to those screenings, the was it a packed crowd? It wasn't super empty, but... Not as crowded as I would like to be. I guess I don't have many Batman fans in my local area, which is disappointing. But, yeah, I'll definitely be checking out on Blu-ray, though. And then Jordan continues saying, Well, as I thought and hoped might happen, the War of Jokes and Riddles arc has taken off for me. I love Batman 27 and 28. Spoilers. Tom King sure does have a thing for a kite man, doesn't he? He took a D-list Batman villain and gave him an incredibly emotional and heartbreaking backstory. I mean, he pretty much pulled a heart of ice with that issue. As for Batman 28, I love that one as well. I love getting to see Catwoman in the past as part of the story. In the present, Batman talked to her about the Deathstroke versus Deadshot fight as we saw it play out in the pages. The fight was incredible, but what made it even better was how King did... Or, or let me read that again. The fight was incredible, but what made it even better was how King did what he does best which is get into how emotionally affected Batman. He opens up to Catwoman about how, for four days, he was unable to save so many innocent civilians caught in the crossfire. When he finally is able to stop the fight on the fifth day, you see just how both hurt and angry Batman is. No more, Batman proclaims. What 
an issue. A similar thing might be happening with this arc as what happened with I Am Gotham for me. I Am Gotham took a couple of issues to take off, but once it did, it became one of my favorite arcs of all time. Here's to hoping the rest of the War of Jokers and Riddles is this, is this amazing. Yeah, I'll be getting into issue 28 later on in my review, Jordan, but I'm glad you agreed with uh, my review on Batman 27 with how great that backstory was for Kai Man. It was really, really good. And then Jordan asked Tim, did you get a chance to finish season one of Teen Titans? I am really eager to hear what you thought of The Apprentice 2 part in particular. Well, Jordan, like I said in the last episode, I was going to make sure I finished season one, and I finally did. So <laughs> I was glad I at least got one uh, season of Teen Titans uh, finished. But yeah, the first uh, two, I guess, filler episodes, for lack of a better words, uh, which was, I believe, Mad Mod, I think was his name, where they're trapped by that British uh, school teacher in a way, and seeing them try to get out of his contraptments and mazes. It was a fun episode, seeing Beast Boy hypnotized and drooling all over. <laughs> did give me some chuckles. And then there's the car trouble where Cyborg's car that he built from his bare two hands and was his baby gets stolen. But the two-part finale, Apprentice, man, were those really good episodes. And I had I knew a little bit about the story of going into it where Robin does end up working with Slade and becomes his apprentice. But I was never sure on the circumstances of that. Was he being mind-controlled by Slade? Was he going undercover? Just what were the reasons? And the actual reason when I saw the episode was better than what uh, I had thought of in my head. It, it was really good. It just shows this is just one of really great Robin stories that I watched. It was that good. And, you know, kind of my thinking when I go through this series, man, I should have watched this a lot sooner. But, yeah, I just loved what they did with Robin's character here. You know, being determined, has that Batman influence on him, being determined to f- find Slade and let nothing stop him or get in his way to find him. But, when Slade gets the best of them. I just love the plan Slade had to, you know, lure them in and plant those devices on the rest of the Teen Titans to make them think they won, but yet they're really in trouble and think that Robin's missing. But to find out where he, that's the reason why Robin works for him, just to keep the Titans safe for Slade, you know, blackmails him pretty much saying, if you don't work for me, I'm going to kill the rest of the Titans with just this one switch. So you got to do exactly as I say, and just seeing Robin go against the Titans. And the fight scenes they had, too, were really good in the second part. It was just really well done. And just seeing, you know, the torment that Robin was going through, not wanting to fight his friends, but has to keep up face with Slade to make sure he doesn't flip that switch and kill him. All really well done. And some cool little Batman touches in there, too. I know the main one is, you sent us an email about it earlier, Jordan, was uh, that scene where Slade tells Robin, I'll, maybe you'll come to... Love me like a father, and Robin just says, I already have a father, and you see the bats flying up. That was a really great moment. But having that main fight with the Titans versus Robin on a Wayne Enterprises building, I thought was really cool, too. So a little, lot of little nice touches like that there, but just a really, really great story to wrap up, um, you know, that season-long arc of Robin trying to chase and chase down and find Slade and defeat him. So it was really, really good. So, yeah, I loved it. And glad I got season one finished, and hopefully it won't take me that long to finish season two, but no promises. I'll continue to keep you up to date, Jordan, with my progress on that. And now for the main part of Jordan's email, the remaining recap of the Smallville rewatch, because, man, Jordan, you just plow through this series. Uh, So uh, Jordan says, well, guys, my Smallville binge is complete, and I'm so, so sad that the journey is over. 
I took about it took me about two months to finish all ten seasons of the show and read all the season eleven comics. By the time I listened to your last episode, I had finished it all, and you were all good when you revealed season six spoilers, Tim. On that note, let me throw out my own spoiler warning and delve into it. Spoilers. I was on season five when I wrote my last email, but I want to go back and touch on season four for a second. Season 4 is the Batman Returns of Smallville for me. What do I mean by that? Just like Batman Returns, I love Season 4 of Smallville, but I totally understand why some people don't, because it's very strange. I mean, the episode where Lana, Lois, and Chloe all get possessed by witches, and the arc regarding that continues throughout the season, is kind of absurd, but I had so much fun watching it anyway. I loved it. There's something else that I really love about Season 4, too other than all the stuff I pointed out in my last email, like the introductions to Lois and Bart. It's the end of what I see as the first chapter of Smallville. Clark and his friends graduate from high school, which was such a focus through the first four seasons, and from that point on the show gradually starts to take place less and less in Smallville. I love every single season of Smallville, but the early seasons are my favorite. There was something really special about the simplicity and brightness of them. It was just Clark and his friends going through high school, Clark running into a different meteor-infected person each week, Clark pining after Lana, and Clark getting fatherly advice from Jonathan. Season 4 was kind of the end of that. Anyway, moving on to Season 5. One of my favorite episodes of the series came up right after I wrote my last email, Lexmas. This is going to be on my annual Christmas viewing rotation now, right alongside Christmas with the Joker, Holiday Nights, Batman Returns, and some other stuff. It is the episode where Lex gets shot and has a hallucination of what his life could be like. Now, now, while it was excruciatingly painful to see him with Lana, at that point I had no idea what was coming, the episode did such a great job exploring Lex's uh, psych- psychology, and I really appreciated that. Then a few episodes later, I got to Reckoning. This was the show's 100th episode, and the one you and Travis Haynes were both hyping, hyping up to me. Reckoning is a phenomenal episode. Phenomenal, all in caps, by Jordan. (laughs) But it's also one of the most devastating things I've ever watched. It destroyed me. Destroyed also, all in caps. (laughs) It destroyed me emotionally. Like, as a Klana shipper, it started off on such a high for me with Clark and Lana getting engaged. By the end of the episode, it was the low point of Clark's life. Like, what? So Clark decides to pull the Barry Allen and save Lana. That I totally get. What makes no sense is the way in which he tried to prevent her death the second time around. Like, why didn't he just tell her not to go to Lex's mansion or get on the road? Instead, he just decided not to propose to her? Bad decision, Clark. And then, because he went back in time, he loses his father. That was seriously so, so sad. As I mentioned before, Jonathan was there for him in so many ways throughout the early seasons. And after this episode, he wasn't anymore. So by the end of the episode... Clark had both damaged his relationship with Lana and lost his father. As I said in my last email, during the first half of season 5, I thought it might wind up being my favorite season of the show. The second half of season 5 dropped in quality just a little bit for me, pretty much after Reckoning, and so that didn't wind up being the case. Like I said before, I love every single season, and honestly every single episode of Smallville, but the second half of season 5 didn't quite live up to the first half of season 5, and therefore, Season 2 remained my favorite season of the show, which is still the case after watching all ten. There was still some great stuff in the second half of Season 5, though. Other than Lex, I think Brainiac is my favorite villain from the show, and he really got the spotlight in Season 5. Brainiac is a villain I've long wanted to see in a live-action movie. 
Little did I know that there had already been a great live-action version of Brainiac on TV. James Marsus did such a great job as him. Also, we met Cyborg in the second half of Season 5. I really like Smallville's take on him. They did a really creative thing to get around the fact that they couldn't really do the special effects for the technology on his body by just making it internal. That was pretty brilliant. Anyway, it was fun to meet him in Season 5. The reason the second half of Season 5 was so hard for me, though, is because, after Reckoning, Clark and Lana's relationship started to deteriorate. Watching this slowly happen was excruciating. The scene where Clark tells her he doesn't love her was so hard to watch. Then her and Lex getting together was even harder to watch. Tim, even though Season 6 is where we saw most of the relationship play out, it's in Season 5 where it started. So I'll talk about my thoughts on it now. I was so, so upset. I mean, Clark and Lana were finally back together, and I loved the first half of Season 5 so much largely due to that, and then the writers had to break them up and have her go and actually marry Lex. But looking at it objectively and in retrospect, I'm not quite as mad about it now as I was as I was watching it. First off, Clark and Lana do eventually get back together, and we see a lot more of them together after this. Secondly, it did a lot for Lex's arc as he transformed into a villain. I mean, look back at the early seasons of Smallville. He was trying to convince Lana that Whitney was the wrong guy for her and that she should be with Clark. The way he did a complete 180 on that by Season 5 shows how much had changed between him and Clark. In Season 5, he sent a girl to try to seduce Clark through hypnosis just so Lana would think he was cheating on her. Are you serious, Lex? And later on, he told Clark that he was going to take everything from him. It was just so evil for Lex to do. And for that reason, in hindsight, I can appreciate it to some extent. Also, I really liked how things played out at the end of Season 6 with Lionel. Now, somewhere, now, somewhat benevolent, or <laughs> now somewhat benevolent due to being Jorlel's vessel, revealing to Lana that he blackmailed her into marrying Lex in order to protect Clark. That was a cool reveal. Season 5 did end with one of the best finales, though, which was pretty awesome. Yeah, Season 5 early on, I knew you were going to love that, Jordan. Reckoning was such a good episode. Smallville knocked it out of the park with their 100th and 200th episodes, I thought. But yeah, seeing Jonathan Kent die, that was a pretty big moment and a sad one. And what another one of my favorite emotional moments, too, was in Season 5, is the episode after. The episode after Reckoning, I think it's called Revenge, where there's like this vig- vigilante character who, again, tried they tried to do a little too much Batman with her, and it just didn't work, and she tried to make Clark, you know, be more aggressive. And the episode wasn't great, but that ending sequence, I thought, was really great, where he just comes home and he sees his mom watching an old video of Jonathan and Clark as a little kid. I think they're on a tractor riding it together and just Clark walks in and you can see the tears run down his eyes. Well, there were some powerful moments with the loss of Jonathan Kent like that that I remember being really well done in that season. And I do agree that Brainiac was uh, pretty cool to see on TV, even though you know he pretty much looked like a human. <laughs> James Marsters did capture that you know robotic uh, style that Brainiac has pretty well, so I thought he was good. And yeah, Cyborg was cool. I thought, like you said, it was pretty neat to have it because you got to understand the TV budget, especially during this time. They couldn't do the full Cyborg robotic armor like we're going to see in Justice League. But I love that moment, I believe, if I remember it right, where Clark uses his x-ray vision on him and you can see all the robotic stuff that's, you know, really inside and being covered. So that was a pretty cool tease. So uh, that's Jordan's thoughts on Season 5, but it continues on with Season 6. Season 6 is a, is a season I've heard a lot of people complain about, but other than the Lana Lex thing, I loved it. First off, it introduced us to Green Arrow. You guys know how big 
big a fan I am of him, and I think Justin Hartley was awesome in the role. I didn't realize just how big a role he was going to have on the show, actually, a series regular in the final three seasons. While I love Stephen Amell's Green Arrow, Hartley's take is more comics accurate, which I appreciate. We also met Jimmy Olsen and Martian Manhunter in season six, both of whom I loved. Aaron Ashmore was great as Jimmy Olsen. He was just such an endearing, genuine, likable character. I really like what Smallville did with uh, Martian Manhunter as well, tying him into Krypton's history and making him sort of a mentor to Clark. The highlight of Season 6 for me was the Justice League. How can you not be excited by that? Justice is one of the best episodes of the show in my opinion. Just seeing Clark, Green Arrow, Impulse, Cyborg, and Aquaman all working together was surreal. The shot of them leaving the level uh, 33.1 facility with it exploding in the background was incredible. The episode also featured a lot of great villainous Lex moments. Awesome. The season also featured one of my favorite guest appearances of the series, which was Linda Carter as Chloe's mother. That was great. Yeah, at that time, Jordan, back in that Justice episode, it either aired at the end of 2006 or early 2007, but that was definitely a big deal at the time for us DC fans. We thought that was the closest we were going to get to seeing members of the Justice League together on live action. So that was a cool episode, I remember. And I love some of the jokes they had, too, where... Uh, I think Green Arrow was trying to give Clark a code name and just called him Boy Scout. He's all, you know, you didn't get to pick your name and you referenced Impulse saying that you didn't get to pick his name either, knowing that, you know, you really should be called Flash, even though I know uh, Bart did play it or his name was Impulse as well, but I did like that little reference where, you know, he could have been called the Flash too. So a lot of cool DC Easter eggs and jokes in that episode of Justice. That was a really high, a big highlight of season six. Yeah, Green Arrow, besides his costume, I mean, it worked for the most part, but I just didn't like how he had the sunglasses <laughs> kind of as his mask. But Justin Hartley did a good job as Oliver Queen, and you're right, it is more comic accurate, but I think I do prefer Stephen Amell's performance just a little bit better, even though it's, you know, like you said, not totally comic accurate like Justin Hartley is, but I do like the rougher, more edgy Green Arrow, too, that Stephen Amell plays, but they're both good on their own merits. And now for Season 7, Jordan says, Season 7 is one of my favorites. As I said before, less and less time has been spent at Smallville starting in Season 5, but this was the last season where the show was still at least primarily set in Smallville. We got more Bizarro, who was introduced at the end of Season 6. I thought they did a great job with Bizarro, making him a legitimate, scary threat, rather than just a guy who had bad grammar. Tom Welling throughout the series did a great job portraying different versions of himself. And this was certainly the case with Bizarro. In Season 7, we also met Supergirl, which was so exciting. I thought Laura Vandervoort was great in the role, and I really liked the bond that she and Clark developed. I wish she was a series regular for more than just Season 7, because she was awesome. I thought it was really cool that we got to see her fly as well, since Clark still couldn't at that point. But my favorite part of Season 7? You probably could have guessed it. (laughs) Clark and Lana were finally back together again. In fact, they were actually living together in Season 7, and she finally knew a secret, which made it even better. It was wonderful. After all the Lex and Lana stuff I had to put up with in Season 6, my favorite couple was finally together again. I also appreciated seeing Lionel in sort of a mentor-type role at Clark. After he became Jor-El's vessel, his attitude towards Clark changed completely, and with Jonathan no longer around, Clark needed someone for guidance. Lex had a really fascinating story in Season 7 as well, involving Virtus. At the Daily Planet, we were introduced to the clone of Julian Luthor, 
played by none other than DCEU's Jimmy Olsen, if only briefly, Michael Cassidy. That storyline involved Lex too, of course, and we really saw more of just how evil Lex is when he murdered both Julian, Julian slash Gabriel and Lionel in Season 7. We also met Black Canary in Season 7, which was a highlight for me. I think Alana Huffman was awesome in the role. I just wish that she had Green Arrow. That she and Green Arrow would have been together in Smallville. We also got a Pete Ross back for an episode, or we also got Pete Ross back for an episode, which was fun. Seeing him again was really nice and brought me back to the great times I had watching his character in the early seasons. Also, there were some more notable legacy guest stars like Helen Slater, Dean Cain, and Mark McClure. I always enjoyed, and I always enjoy those. Unfortunately, season seven did end on a downer with Lana leaving Clark but at least they were together for most of the season. Overall, Season 7 is definitely one of the best, in my opinion. Yeah, I remember Supergirl showing up was really cool, and like you said, Laura Vandervoort did a great job, I thought, as her. And Bizarro, you know, he was a Season 6 finale cliffhanger with uh, him being introduced. And you're right, it was a pretty good take on uh, Bizarro. I did like the effect of his spe- skin almost looking like cracked glass in a way. And Tom Welling did a good job being the bizarre version of himself. So they did a good job with that. I just wish he was in it a little more. It would have been cool if he was, like, the main villain for the whole season. But, yeah, you reminded me of things I've forgotten, Jordan. One of the things, I mean, you mentioned earlier was Lionel being the vessel for Jor-El. I totally forgot about that and how he kind of filled the void as the mentor father figure for Clark after Jonathan Kent died. So, yeah, I forgot about that. And we knew it was, I mean, even in season one, I remember, oh, Lex is going to end up killing Lionel eventually in this series. And this is the moment where it happened, where he pushed him out the window. I remember it was like almost one of that moments where Lex is finally becoming the Lex Luthor. And we knew he was going to be, and that was a big pivotal moment for him. So even though that was a moment, I knew it was coming from season one, it was still a pretty good payoff from what had happened in season seven. And for season eight, Jordan continues saying, a lot changed in season eight. First off, it was the first season where the show took place primarily in Metropolis. Secondly, two of my favorite characters were no longer series regulars, Lana and Lex. In fact, by season 8, only two original cast members were left, Tom Willing and Allison Mack. There were some new characters introduced as series regulars, though. First off, there was Cassidy Freeman. I really did not know what to make of Tess Mercer at first. Unfortunately, I did have a spoil for me that she was uh, Lena Luthor. So I already knew that coming in. However, what I didn't know is that she was going to have one of the best character arcs of anyone on the show. At first, she is at odds with Clark and seems to be following in Lex's footsteps. But over the course of the last three seasons, she allies herself with Clark and changes drastically. Jumping ahead in the series finale, Clark tells Lex, I'm sorry I couldn't save you. I see Tess as being the the Luthor that Clark was able to save. By the end of the series, she had become one of my favorite characters. I think it's cool how besides being Lena Luthor, she's also an amalgamation of Mercy Graves and Miss Tessmacher. <laughs> you have to say it like that. <laughs> You're right, Jordan. When you hear that name, Miss Tessmacher, you just hear Gene Hackman screaming it. <laughs> uh, there's also Davis Bloom, played by Sam Witwer. I can't remember at exactly which point in the season I realized he was Doomsday, but it was pretty early on. I am glad that wasn't spoiled for me. I thought he was great. And as long as they kept him in the shadows when he was in full doomsday form, I thought he looked incredibly scary. I mean, the scene where he wrecks Chloe and Jimmy's wedding is terrifying. I guess now would be a good time to talk about my favorite storyline of the season, which starts at Chloe and Jimmy's wedding. Lana returns. She only comes back for five seconds, but they were amazing. 
We find out that she didn't leave Clark in Season 7 by her own volition. Lana got this power suit, and she and Clark got back together. It was amazing, but Lex had to ruin it again. Now, I truly believe that this is the most evil thing that Lex did on the series. He was so determined to take everything away from Clark. He basically put Lana in a situation where she had to absorb kryptonite in her suit in order to stop a bomb, but doing so would mean that she couldn't be near Clark. Clark and Lana made the heroic choice and sacrificed the relationship to save innocent people. That final scene in the barn kills me. I both love it, love it and hate it. It's so well acted, and the way Clark powers through the kryptonite to kiss Lana one last time is absolutely heartbreaking. It made me so, so sad. Don't leave, don't leave me again, Lana. Even if we can't be together, I want you in my life. That's where you're stronger than me. To see you on the street every day and not be able to touch you. Anyway, I'm going to grab some tissues and come right back. <laughs> okay, I'm back. Uh, there was a lot of other great stuff during Season 8. During that Clark and Lana storyline, we met some Legionnaires in an episode written by Jeff Johns, which was awesome. Justin Hartley became a series regular, and we got some more insight into Oliver Queen's past in this universe, including his connection to Test. We met Zatanna, which was awesome. This, this version is a little more mischievous than I'm used to, but it made for a lot of really fun episodes. The best one coming in Season 10. More on that later. We also got some classic Superman rogues like Toy Man and also Livewire and Parasite in smaller roles. I thought that the end of the season involving the conclusion of Doomsday Story was really strong. Clark always sees the best in people, but when Davis Bloom turned out to be a murderer even after he'd been split from his Doomsday persona, Clark lost some of his faith in that belief, which I found fascinating. Jimmy's death was really emotional. As I said before, this version of Jimmy was just so likable and was just really sad what happened to him. This was something that I unfortunately knew was coming due to hearing fans complain about it in the past. I don't share their gripes though. His death was sad, but I thought it worked really well as a subversion of expectations. Also, I want to add that I love that he gave Chloe the Watchtower. It was awesome to have that going forward. Yeah, season 8 was a big season because I believe that's where they got new showrunners for the show. And I remember when I'm watching it when it first aired, I really liked it. It was really got off to a strong start with what they were doing with Doomsday. I agree, Sam Wartworth was really great in the role as Davis and Slash Doomsday. And the points where they showed Doomsday, I said this before in a previous episode, uh, for that time and for the TV budget, I thought Doomsday looked pretty darn good <laughs> for what they were able to do. So I thought they pulled out that off good. But I do have to disagree on what you said about Jimmy. Not that his death was bad, but that end scene with the funeral where it kind of turns out, oh, that's not the real Jimmy Olsen who's going to be Superman's pal. That's his younger brother who Chloe gives the camera to. It's like, uh, okay. Kind of just, I would have been more happy, you know, that was the real Jimmy, Jimmy and he just happened to die and that was it. It was almost like they had to make sure all the standard Superman uh, stuff were used to get set up even though they changed a little bit. Like, I would be perfectly fine if the Smallville version of Superman doesn't have a Jimmy or that, you know, he just took place earlier in Clark's life. So that was just the one point where I kind of rolled my eyes. Okay, you had to go and do that. <laughs> but other than that, I agree. Uh, their interpretation of Jimmy was really, really good. And he would have been a great Jimmy in the more, you know, uh, normal situations that we're used to seeing Jimmy with Superman. But he didn't quite get there. And I also agree that uh, Legion, of Super Legion of Superheroes episode was really, really good. And I think that was the first one Jeff Johns wrote. And I know he did more, but that was a really cool episode. And now for Season 9, Jordan says, Season 9 was the Zod season. 
I thought Colin Blue was a really good General Zod. I put him in between Michael Shannon and Terrence Stamp when ranking the live-action portrayals of that character. I don't think we've seen nearly enough of Mark Gibbon on Supergirl to rank him yet. I also thought it was cool how there was a lingering terrifying vision of the future throughout the season weighing on the character's mind. It reminded me of what they did on season 3 of The Flash. We got Metallo in this season as well, and I thought they did a great job with him. I loved the design, and I thought it was cool how they gave him a redemption arc, although he later turns back to villainy in the season 11 comics. I loved the Green Arrow stuff in this season too. It was awesome how he started to train Speedy. We unfortunately never saw her in costume on the show, but she was in costume in the season 11 in, com- in the season 11 comics. Smallville did a really inspired take on the Wonder Twins in season 9 too. That's right, I forgot about that episode, but it was definitely unique. Uh, the JSA 2 part written by Jeff Johns was awesome as well. It was awesome seeing a lot of those characters come to life in live action, like Dr. Fate and Supergirl. It was even cool to see the old footage of some of the ones that weren't really a part of the episode, like Alan Scott's Green Lantern. The only complaint I had about the two-parter was that Michael Shanks chose to do a Christian Bale Batman voice as Hawkman. Now, I actually love the Christian Bale Batman voice, but for Batman, not Hawkman, lol. The whole Checkmate slash Amanda Waller arc that the JSA two-parter launched was pretty interesting as well. Another episode that stood out for me was Escape where both Clark and Lois and Oliver and Chloe go to a bed and breakfast where the woman, where the women get possessed by Silver Banshee. There were just a lot of hilarious moments in that episode, and Silver Banshee's design was pretty frightening as well. Finally, it was great to see Martha Kent and Perry White return at the end of Season 9. I totally did not see the twist of Martha Kent being the Red Queen coming. Yeah, Season 9 I remember liking a lot too. Clark was really being more of the superhero character. He didn't have a Superman costume, but that's where he had the black t-shirt and the black trench coat, almost like his Matrix look, <laughs> look for his uh, superhero costume. But there was some, a lot of great DC stuff in that season, I remember. And yeah, the whole uh, Justice JSA two-part episode was really, really good. That's one of my favorite episodes of the whole show. They did a great job. Dr. Fate looked awesome, and uh, I really geeked out when they showed the old JSA uh, memorabilia, memorabilia like uh, Green Lantern's ring, Alan Scott's ring, and his lantern. That was really cool. So that was definitely one of the highlights of the season and of the whole show, I think. But now for the final season, Jordan says, Alrighty, on to the final season of the main show. Before I get started, I want to say that it is weird that there were only four series regular that season, unless you count Alice and Mac was only credited as one in the 11 episodes she appeared in. I didn't mind, it was just odd to me. In the first episode of season 10, we got one of my favorite scenes of the series, which is Clark having a vision of Jonathan at the farm. It reminds me of the scene in Batman v Superman on the mountain where Clark has a vision of Jonathan, although the Smallville scene did come first, even though I didn't see it first, of course. It was such an emotional scene. We met Smallville's version of Cat Grant in season 10 as well. My goodness, she was annoying, but in a way that made for a lot of really funny scenes. One of my favorite episodes of season 10 was Homecoming, where Clark and Lois go to the Smallville High reunion. I really miss all the adventures at Smallville High in the show's early seasons, and it was great to see Clark go back there. It was really funny how no one remembered Lois at the reunion since she went to school there for such a short period of time. It was also great to see Greg Arkin come back. He was one of the Villain of the Week characters from Season 1, and it was really cool how they brought him back after all that time and how he told Lois how much Clark had helped him. What may be the funniest episode of the series came in Season 10, Fortune. 
As I said, when Zatanna's involved, all kinds of antics ensue. It felt like the Hangover Smallville edition. Tess and Emile Hamilton singing at the Ace of Club is one of the funniest things I've ever seen, given their typical personalities. Throughout the season, it was cool. To, it was cool to see them planting seeds for Darkseid. I love seeing Gordon Godfrey, Desaad, Granny Gundis, and the female Furies. We also got new heroes like Superboy, Mera, Booster Gold, and Blue Beetle in Season 10, all of whom I thought were done really well. It was also cool seeing them start to explore the multiverse with Earth 2, which was explained upon even more in the Season 11 comics. The two-part series finale was amazing. I was so sad watching it knowing that my binge watch was coming to an end, but it was a very satisfying conclusion to the show. Seeing Darkseid and Apocalypse in live action was unbelievable. I love seeing Michael Rosenbaum return to the show as Lex after Darkseid revived him. I will say, though, that I was disappointed that he was only in the sole episode following his departure at the end of Season 7. I'd, heard, I'd been told that Rosenbaum came back for Season 10, but I didn't realize it was just for one episode. So for the whole season, I was waiting and waiting for him to come back, but unfortunately it didn't happen until the very end. Rosenbaum was brilliant, as always, when he did finally return in the second part of the finale, but I just wish we would have seen more of him. I can say now, without a doubt in my mind, that he is the best live-action Lex. No other actor has even come close. It was so incredible to see Tom Welling finally in the Superman suit in the end. Tom is my favorite live-action version of the character now, and to see his journey finally cultivate in that moment was extraordinary. But yeah, season 10 were some uh, good payoffs for, you know, stuff we've been watching for the past 10 years, and a lot of cool DC Easter eggs, too. Uh, like I said, a lot of guest stars. I really like the Blue Beetle and Booster Gold episode. I thought they did a good job with them. And one of the best episodes, like I mentioned earlier, was the 200th one. I think that was Homecoming, if I remember right. But my favorite part is where Clark gets transported to the future, where he goes to the Daily Planet, and he is Superman. We see him ride the elevator with his future self, the Clark Kent with the glasses, and going up to the rooftop becomes Superman. That was really cool. I thought that was a great moment. And yeah, the series finale... I think overall it was a very satisfying conclusion to the series that I've watched since 2001 up to 2011 during that time. And I will say the one part I was disappointed in was we never really got a full shot of Clark in the Superman costume. A lot of it was really, really wide shots where you can't see his face and it was just, you know, a CG suit on him, the CG Superman return suit to be exact. And so we just didn't get that classic, you know, full-on Superman shot of Tom Welling which, you know, we've been wanting to see for so long, probably since the series started. But I will say, it ended the perfect way possible where he's just running on the rooftop of the Daily Planet, ripping up his uh, shirt and tie, and you see the classic, iconic Superman S-Shield and with the blue, you know, classic Superman suit underneath. It was a really good way to end it. And just, I think it was a weird experience seeing that journey finally end after following it for 10 years. So they did a good job of, you know, satisfying the fans that were waiting for that Superman moment. Even though we didn't see him fully... See, I'm always torn. That sequence where he saves Lois on the plane, it could have been cool, but it just I just didn't think they pulled it off quite right, where they were taking shortcuts on how they showed uh, Tom Welling as Superman, where they didn't really show him yet. So that's my one nitpick on the season or the series finale, but the last shot was phenomenal, I would agree. But he continues, Jordan continues saying, I did read all the season 11 comics as soon as I finished the show itself, and I loved them. I'll only go into detail on the first volume, since I know that's the only one you've read, Tim. 
I love that cyborg Superman, a villain who was absent from the show, appeared. It was also awesome to find out that Tess wasn't exactly dead. I complained that we didn't get to see more of Michael Rosabama's legs in season 10, but fortunately we got more of the character in season 11. I thought it was brilliant, in an evil way, how he infected Superman with radiation so that he could track his every move. We also got introduced to Otis, who I loved ever since I first saw Superman the movie, and he was written so well in those comics. I won't say much about the other volumes, but we do get to see a lot of characters who were introduced on the show come back, including including one more story with Lana in the Smallville universe, as well as characters who never appeared in the show itself, like Batman, Wonder Woman, and Constantine. I highly recommend checking them out. Yeah, so maybe I forgot how many were in the first volume, because I read up to where Batman appears, which is, to be honest, the main reason why I was continuing to read those season 11 comics, because of Batman finally showing up in that universe. And I, I didn't think he disappointed. There were some differences, of course, but for how he fit in the Smallville universe, I thought it was really well done. It was just cool to finally see that, even though it was in comics and not the show. I still think they pulled it off pretty darn well. Well, I'm completely finished with Smallville now. I cannot believe I waited so long to finally watch the show. I can now say that it is, without a doubt, my favorite DC TV show of all time. The journey you take with these characters is unmatched. You really get to see Clark, Lex, and many of the other characters gradually grow into the characters we're familiar with, and it's an amazing journey to go on. Since I finished Smallville, I've been spending a lot of time just watching Smallville, mostly Klana videos on YouTube, because I already miss the show so much. It's Superman's Dark Knight trilogy for me. What I mean by that is that it is my definitive live-action version of Superman, just like the Dark Knight trilogy is my definitive live-action version of Batman. The show captures everything that Superman is about so well, and I now hold this version of his world and the DC Universe as a whole so dear. Well, it doesn't matter how long it takes you to watch the show, Jordan, it's just cool when you finally do get to see it. Yeah, Smallville, for me personally, it definitely had its ups and downs, uh, but overall, like you said, the journey these characters took in these 10 years is unmatched by any other DC show right now, so... Um, Arrow's on season 6 we'll see if it makes it to season 10 and if it can rival what Smallville did but yeah just starting seeing the journey that Clark went through was just really great and to have to, to have the show you know make it long enough where they were able to end it like they wanted to to have him become Superman I thought was really really cool and that doesn't happen all the time so it's awesome that they got to do that I won't put it quite as high as you do as far as being my definitive version of Superman in live action I think uh, Christopher Reeves is always going to hold that, have that title for me. To me, his portrayal is unmatched, but hey, it's cool that uh, Tom Welling and his version of Superman is that for you, because he did a great job as being like, the young Clark Kent. And even at that time, uh, me and my brother, who always watched the show, uh, always wondered how he would do as Superman if he got to play him in the movie. And I always thought he'd do a good job, so... Uh, he got to do it for a little bit in the series finale, but I, I always wonder how he would truly be as Superman for a, you know, a movie or something. But glad you were finally able to watch it, Jordan, and glad that you loved it so much and that it's become your favorite version of Superman. That's pretty awesome. And he continues saying, Alrighty, I know this email has been an even longer one than usual, so I'll wrap it up with a couple of quick questions now. Number one, I guess this one is just for Tim, but what is your favorite season of Smallville? Yeah, I was thinking about that, and... I think if I had to just pick one, I would go with season three. Because like you, I think there is something special about those early seasons of Smallville where it's him in high school. I think season three had some really good episodes. I loved how it started off, you know, after the season two cliffhanger with him being infected by the red kryptonite. 
and there were some other good episodes where uh, he got or he discovered more of his powers. One of my favorite ones was where he was blind for most of the episode, and that's where he had to rely on his uh, or got his super hearing. I thought how that develop or that power develop was really cool. So stuff like that was cool. I loved the finale where it looked like he was really gonna or Jor-El was gonna take him to become Superman of the Kryptonian that he was meant to be, and how season four started with him flying for the first time on the show, I thought was great. Even though season four was probably my least favorite, that season premiere was pretty awesome. Seeing Clark <laughs> fly through the sky and rip open planes, I thought that was cool. So yeah, I'd probably go with season three as my favorite, but the later ones did have some cool episodes that tied in more into the larger DC universe, like you said. I think for my later for the later seasons, season nine would be my favorite, because we had the See, I already forgot the JSA one was season 9 or 10. I know you just said it in your email, but I know it was in one of those two seasons. And that one, like I said, was a standout for pretty much the whole series, seeing that. So, um, yeah, it was season 9. So I'd go with that one as far as one of the later seasons as being my favorite. And then, Jordan, second question is, with the live-action Flashpoint movie announced and Jeffrey Dean Morgan's recent social media post, do you think they'll include any of the material from the Night of Vengeance comics in it? I think those comics are just as good as the main Flashpoint story, and I would love to see a decent amount of Lauren Cohen as Martha Wayne's Joker in the film. Yeah, I totally agree. Those Night of Vengeance stories were awesome. (laughs) So unexpected and unique, but so, so good. And I don't think they'd be a main focus of the movie, but I think we're definitely going to see him. Well, actually, I do think if they're going to do the Flashpoint movie, the Thomas Wayne Batman will be a main part of the movie like he is in the comic in animated film. I personally think he has to be. But as far as the Martha the Wayne Joker, I think it might be something where, kind of like how Suicide Squad had those flashback sequences telling you about the history of some characters, we might get a little uh, sequence like that where we see uh, the Bruce Wayne getting murdered and Martha becoming the Joker. Maybe not necessarily be a big plot point in the movie, but we'll see Thomas Wayne think about that. And yeah, it'd be really cool if they get Jeffrey Dean Morgan and uh, Lauren Cohen to reprise their roles as Thomas and Martha Kent in, you know, as Batman and Joker. I think that would be awesome. So here's hopes, here's hoping that that happens <laughs> for the Flashpoint movie. And that's going to do it for Jordan's email. As always, thank you for your email, Jordan. And, you know, it was great to hear you go through uh, your binge watch of Smallville. Like I said, it's been years since I've seen it. I don't remember everything about the show, and it was great to get a refresher on it uh, from your emails. And I, mean, I love the fact that you enjoyed it so much. So it was just great all around. So thank you for sharing that with us. It was fun to read it with you. And with that, we can go ahead and go into some comic book reviews. And as always, there's going to be spoilers for the comics I'm going to talk about on this episode. And those are going to be Detective Comics 962 and Batman number 28. And for a rating scale, I think I'm going to tie it into one of these comic issues I'm going to be talking about. And I'm going to, it's going to be amounts of times I want to see the Asbat suit show up in future issues. <laughs> because for Detective Comics, I'll go ahead and start with that one first. That was just one of my few gripes about this issue. Because uh, this one had the return of John Paul Valley in his Azrael Batman costume. And it was awesome. <laughs> it was so cool to see that suit again. I've always had a soft spot for it in Nightfall. And to see it show up the way it did here, I thought worked really, really well. Um, you know, that Luke Fox was building this suit for John Paul Valley to kind of have something to replace uh, his Azrael suit in the system that, you know, sometimes controls his mind. He wanted to have a suit that's taken the best parts of Batman 
um, be you know in Jean Paul's subconscious instead of the Saint Order of Saint Dumas' system. But Jean Paul Valley's like, you know, you just want to make sure I can fight as the best <laughs> like Batman to take down, uh, you know, Osc- uh, the villain that's in it, uh, Ascalion. I almost forgot his name there. <laughs> the you know the orders the system of the order saying Damas in that robot suits is terrorizing the Belfry, and now John Paul Valley's John Paul Valley is going to fight him in the Asbat suit. I got to say, seeing it in action again was just awesome. The artwork in this issue was really really good. They just did a great job of capturing the classic Asbat suits, and I love there's something cool about him. Hold his fist out, and you see those a tiny battering uh, fly out of it and just stab. You know, Askillian. It, it just took me back to the Nightfall stories and those comics from the 90s. It was just a great nostalgia trip, I would say, by reading this issue. So, um, Asbat's able to take out Askillian, and we get some reveals throughout the issue where uh, it turns out uh, Nomaz, the little uh, furry dwarf creature, uh, has to, they're trying to get him out, but he wants to go back to Jean Paul Valley because he has to tell him something. And this is, I got a little confused here at one point because um, as Nomaz goes to tell Jean-Paul Valley, you know, he's, he's getting pretty beat up here. The Asbat suit, uh, it did good, but not good enough to totally dominate Askillian. But Nomaz just tells him, like, Jean-Paul, he's your bro, and then he gets stabbed by Askillian and he didn't finish. But then when Jean-Paul Valley goes to talk to Nomaz, he goes, you know, you're going to say something, I need to know. Like, what is the system, the program by Saint Dumas? Like, who created it? And he goes, it was Jean-Paul Valley Sr. It was your father. So I thought he was going to say it was his brother in the suit, but it turns out the one who, you know, programmed Jean-Paul Valley and the, uh, the system, it's his father. And I always thought this suit that was attacking was just a robot, so I wasn't quite sure where the whole brother thing came from that Nomaz was going to say. But after that, John Paul Valley goes on a tear and just rips up the Askillian suit and just you know, it takes it down. But the suit uh, then later reveals it's in, got into the network of like Gotham citizens' phones and uh, computers and all that stuff. And he's gonna, you know, he's, he knows everyone's secrets and you know everything. That's, he's able to control everything through that. Uh, but uh, before he's able to have total digital domination, I guess um, Zatanna comes in with the with the sphere that her and Bruce was looking for to, you know, kind of gain those lost memories back. And that was going to be her way to stop Askillian. And Bruce is, you know, saying, are you sure about this? You know, we don't know if this is uh, going to be, a, we don't know what this is going to do. But Askillian looks at it, and he just, you know, gets obsessed with it. He's, he's like, I could see, like, I could see everything here. Like, I mean, he even called his Jean-Paul brother, so I'm still not sure where we're going with that. I don't think I missed anything, but... Maybe I did, because it's definitely just like a robot suit that I thought was in control. And then what happens, the sphere actually brings out the system that was in Jean-Paul Valley's head that was a little kid from the previous issue. And he just comes out saying, like, wait, how am I real? And then Askillian just tells him, come child, we have much to learn. And so they're pretty much going to be absorbed into that sphere, that sphere, it looks like. But then Askillian tells Batman, he goes, I know the pain of your heart. The boy you lost, the one who drove you to draw the sphere out and bring about my culmination, Batman's all I guess. He goes, uh, Tim Drake is still alive. And Batman just all what? But then Oskillian gets absorbed into the sphere before Batman can ask for any, any further questions. And so I am glad that Batman's finally out of the dark, that Tim is still alive, and that can hopefully now be his focus to try to bring Tim Drake back as part of the team, because I miss having Tim in this team.
it's been much too long since he's been away. So at the end of the issue, we see uh, Batman talking uh, to Jean-Paul Valley about what he's going to do. And he actually says he's talked to Luke Fox about uh, making a new version of the Azrael suit. But like I said, that's what got me disappointed. I just loved how he was back in that awesome uh, bat suit. And it looked like it's only going to be for one issue. So that was a little disappointing. And Batman asks him about that Batman AI. Is it still inside him? And John Paul says, um, yes, it's still inside me. And he says, like, I wonder if this is what you what it feels like to be you all the time. Like, it's calling to me to go out to the city and to save people, to do whatever it takes at any cost. And says, it's like, it's as though I can feel it building in me, like, becoming angry and I have to be ready to act. And so Batman thinks, there he says, well, I think Luke should, Luke should take a look at that uh, programming again and make sure that, you know, that piece of Aspillion is really expunged. And then he's all, maybe you should take a look at uh, your core programming and make sure, you know, that there's no flaws in that. And Batman just goes like, huh, by all means, have him go ahead. So a little funny moment there between Batman and Jean-Paul Valley that I like. Then the issue ends with, uh, looks like the one behind a lot of this is still Rachel Ghoul. And, you know, he's still hasn't revealed what his main plan is, but he has played a role a lot in these detective issues going back into the last, the last arc. So we'll see how much Rachel Ghoul is involved in future story arcs. So, yeah, this issue of Detective Comics I really dug. It was really great seeing the as-bad suits again. I thought they, they worked it well into the story, and it looked awesome. The action sequences with it were really cool to see. So I'm going to give this one four out of five more issues I want to see the as-bad suit show up in. Now for Batman number 28. The war jokes and riddles continues, and yeah, I don't know. I, I'm really not getting into it, unfortunately. I know, Jordan, you said it picked up for you. It hasn't for me. I mean, this is going to be the, kind of weird to say, but I would never thought a story arc that's pitting the Riddler and the Joker against each other as the main antagonist, and the issue I liked the most had nothing to do with them, but with Kite Man. Well, they were involved a little bit, but Kite Man is the main villain who's shining in the story, because <laughs> I love that last issue. And with this one, it started off pretty neat, where Gordon has to infiltrate or go to the Riddler and Joker. They both have different... Uh, circumstances that they want Gordon to show up and uh, one of them, I believe it was Joker, wants Gordon to show up in his underwear and Riddler who wants to have Gordon showing up in you know, a prison orange jumpsuit with his face covered. So I thought that was pretty interesting because they were trying to make terms, like find out what they want and they want Batman. So as Gordon tells Batman on the rooftop, they say that's the way the, or- the war ends. They want me to bring them, they want me to bring you to them. So it looks like all this is hinging on Batman just showing up to stop uh, this war. And it looks like the Gotham Police Department, you know, they're doing all they can, but it's not going to be enough. And it looks like, you know, more actual uh, government forces are going to have to show up to try to get things under control. But Gordon wants to stop this. Gordon and Batman want to stop that from happening before it comes to that. And then, as you mentioned, uh, Jordan, in your email... Uh, we do get that moment with uh, Kite Man, of all people, who I wish you know he had a bigger role than what he did here, trying to recruit uh, Selina Kyle uh, to join their side with Joker, but she just throws him out the window, and then Batman caught him. And it was I did like how they were showing the back and forth banter between the the past with you know the normal dialogue uh, balloons, but then you got you know the monologue dialogue captions where they're talking to each other there. So it was kind of a neat back and forth and how they're kind of talking to each other in a similar way. But uh, the big thing I just have trouble with this issue is 
the war that's going on and not seeing enough of it, and then just the villains' motives of why they're joining either Riddler or Joker's size. I just felt that was totally overlooked, and it's taking a little bit of away of my enjoyment to know when they do clash, even though it's so short. Like that Deadshot and Deathstroke face-off, I think it could have been cool, but it's like, you know, why do either of them want to join up with the Joker or the Riddler? It seems like you know, maybe they're being paid to, I'm sure that's the reason, but I just wish we could have seen more of why these villains are teaming up with them and the reason they chose their particular side. So it just seems a little, I don't know, just I don't, maybe just a little hollow as far as me not getting into these action sequences when they happen. And again, it's just one splash page that's uh, conveying the action that's gone on through those five days. And the, when I first read it, I was like, man, Batman should, shouldn't take him five days to take down Deathstroke and uh, Deadshot. But then I got to remember, this is pretty early in Batman's career still. He even says it when I reread it again that, um, you know, this, you know, these guys are both mercenaries for a long time, and I was just a year away from kicking the tree, so it's still pretty on early on for Batman, so it makes sense why he wouldn't be able to stop him right away. But once he does take him down, he takes him down pretty easily, <laughs> I say. And so this made me think, maybe he could, didn't have to take him five days, but I agree with that moment where, you know, he just had enough, I thought was really well done, where he just screams at him. Like, enough. Like, this ends today. No more. No more. It just lets out that scream. I do love that panel where that one page is just Batman screaming. So, I thought the moment was neat. I just didn't like how it was played out in the circumstances where, you know, let's, let's just have Deadshot and Deathstroke show up in this issue with no build-up. And, you know, yeah, it made sense why it did take Batman long enough, but then when I read it or saw him take him out, it made me think, okay, why didn't... Why did he have so much trouble and it took him five days to take him down when he did it so easily when he did? So, I don't know, this took a little bit away from me from enjoying it as much as I think it was intended to. So, it, it ends with him and Gordon on the rooftop again. And then uh, Gordon does say that, or there is some dialogue, that some government special forces went in, but they got wiped out pretty easily by Joker and the Riddler. So, that didn't have uh, much effect. So, you know, it kind of just ends with saying, you know, they need a miracle <laughs> to get through this because they were talking about how uh, they were talking about how Deathstroke and his condition was improving after Batman uh, beat him up pretty badly. And they were saying, you know, the doctor said it's a miracle how he survived and the last bit of dialogue was nothing but a miracle. I think that was implying, you know, what the city needs right now is a miracle. So while there was some good moments in this issue, this, the whole story as a whole, this isn't clicking for me. I just think a lot of things are being overlooked, uh, and we're not seeing much of the Joker and Riddler's conflict besides from the initial first part of the issue was just set up. But I really wanted to dive into the Joker and the Riddler in this war, more dialogue um, with them and their team and why their villains are teaming up with them and seeing more of the war happen. So... I don't know, I'm still not totally into it, even though it does have some good moments. So I'm going to give this one two and a half out of five times I want to see the Asbat suit show up in future issues. So, yeah, unfortunately, the War of Jokes and Riddles hasn't kicked off yet unless Kite, Kite Man is involved so far. He's been the highlight of the whole thing for me, which is definitely, you know, I wasn't expecting going into this arc. But it's not over yet. Hopefully it'll pick up by the time it wraps up. 
But that is going to do it for this episode. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening who stayed with me and hopefully, you know, uh, didn't get tired of hearing my voice for about an hour and a half. And thank you, Jordan, for sending your email. Uh, this probably would have been a really, really short episode with just me uh, by myself. But with your email and recapping uh, your last few seasons of Smallville, uh, it made for, you know, a good discussion of going back for me recalling those moments in Smallville that I really liked. So you definitely helped fill the content for this episode, and I appreciate it very much. But as always, you can check out uh, the Batman Universe at thebatmanuniverse.net and on social media at facebook.com slash thebatmanuniverse. And at Twitter, you can follow them at batmanuniverse, and you can follow follow our Twitter handle at uh, batfanspodcast. You can follow my personal account at timg311, and with Dane, you can follow him at Dane Says Banana. And if you want to send us an email, any thoughts or questions, uh, go ahead and send them to batfanswithoutpants at gmail.com. So with that, that's going to do it for this episode. Hopefully, uh, Dan will be back to join me for our next one. So I won't have to talk to myself for (laughs) as long as I did here. But I appreciate you guys sticking with me and listening, and we'll see you next time.